Welcome back to Leaders of Color. Today we are joined by Manvinder Kord Gill, who is a community-based researcher whose work is centered on religion, culture, and health equity. She holds a Bachelor of Science and Honors Bachelor of Arts from the University of Winnipeg and her master's thesis in religious studies from McMaster University, which interrogated the intersections of alcohol and sicky, particularly considering influences of colonialism, gender, and trauma. She has held research fellowships at Dili University and at the University of Victoria. She is currently pursuing her master's of social work at the University of Toronto and is interested in understanding Indigenous Punjabi and Sikh forms of healing for addiction treatment. Her work aims to reimagine colonial narratives and direct energy towards frameworks of love and sovereignty, fostering spaces of co-learning. She is the founder of ASRA, the Punjabi Alcohol Resource, a youth-led grassroots initiative bringing her research into practice. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. How are you doing in the midst of year two of COVID? I'm doing okay. I feel like, you know, the new restrictions have been announced. The park is just a very meaningful space to me. So to kind of have it taken away from me is, you know, something I'm grappling with. But yeah, daily walks to nice coffee shops are still still keeping me keeping me alive. Yeah, I feel that. I went for a little drive this morning to fix up my car and I saw all these people in the playground and I was like, hang on. And then I checked and apparently they walked it back <laughs> yesterday. So <laughs> who knows what's in place and what isn't. I'm mm. trying to hide in my house for fear of safety, <laughs> totally. which I probably shouldn't laugh about. But you know, if we don't laugh about this, I really don't know what we're going to do other than cry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I feel you. I'm right there with you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Have you been watching or reading anything while being stuck inside? I have been. I feel like I'm a big rewatcher right now. I really like that certainty of knowing what's going to happen in the television show. So recently, my partner and I have delved into Schitt's Creek, which he never watched. Oh, I love Schitt's Creek. (laughs) Yeah, so good. He was like not convinced at the beginning that it was going to be good. Because like, I don't know, I guess the first episode isn't like the most enticing. But I was like, you have to. I like make some Alexis and David references all the time. You need to get on this wavelength. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Ew, I think we're only season five already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ew. No, I love it. I will. I will allow white Canadian television for that one show. <laughs> Are there yeah. representations in it? No, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that one Indian guy. <laughs> oh, yes, that is true. They do have that one. (laughs) Well, I think he might. I think he's a Canadian actor, but I've seen him like as being literally that one Indian guy in all of these random sitcoms. And they always make him do an accent. (laughs) But I think also one of like the main writers, her name is Rupinder Gill. And like she's someone who like wrote this book, I think it was called From the Outside Looking Indian that like me and my friends randomly stumbled upon when we were like 18. Oh, wow. So to see her name again, I was like, oh. Me too. I'm also a girl. We're the same. Oh, nice. So, you know. <laughs> but I will have to check that out. I hadn't heard of Rupinder Gill before. I will definitely take a look at that. But to get to the reason why we're here today, tell us a little bit about your organization and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the organization that I do some work with is called ASRA, the Punjabi Alcohol Resource. And it really functions as a starting point for Punjabi families who struggle with problems with alcohol and are seeking help either for themselves or a loved one. So we're really trying to cater to that whole circle of impact doing like or creating like a whole circle of care. And 
really trying to create a resource. So that would be our website that continues to have this conversation and helps people understand what a problem with alcohol might look like and what resources are available for them if they choose to access them. So mostly we work with youth. So around ages like 18 to 35, we hold monthly community conversations about the intersection of problems with alcohol in Punjabi communities and all of the topics that intersect with that. So for example, we had a conversation on the role anger plays in the phenomenon of someone who has a problem with alcohol. We focus a lot on circuits of care. So again, thinking about gendered care, thinking about that circle of care, what role everyone plays in that care. And those monthly conversations are catered to people who are impacted by a loved one's problem with alcohol. So just creating a space where monthly we can get together and talk about any challenges or problems that we might be encountering. Our website also has information on addictions, withdrawal, harm reduction, and it's all available in English and Punjabi. And the Punjabi translations, we were very mindful about how those translations went because I think sometimes it can just be like a word for word Google translation, kind of just like check marking, like, okay, like we've serviced the Punjabi community or Punjabi communities. but we wanted to make it accessible in everyday Punjabi. And that's also just something that we're working on all the time as we try to figure out like what the best word for addiction is in Punjabi. Kind of a constant reworking around that. And yeah, we're always collaborating with other organizations who are interested in having this conversation or who are interested in spreading information about what a problem with alcohol looks like. So like South Asian university groups, healthcare providers, just sharing how we're servicing Punjabi communities and how they can also engage in that work. Because we are very grassroots. Other organizations are, you know, a little better funded. So helping them service like the communities that they work within. That's amazing. And I know that broadly across DC communities, this is uh, an issue that faces a lot of our communities and a lot of our people, and especially young people too. And, and the disproportionate effects perhaps that that has intergenerationally, I think, is something that's really key. So the translations that you folks are doing, I think, is a huge step in like meaningful advocacy and, and doing work that is meant to actually serve people, you know, as opposed to just mm-hmm. releasing things out there and, and letting it wander like you're purposefully making an effort and being intentional about the way you use that. And I think that's really important. I wonder what motivated you to start this work. I know that we have sort of like The history of Punjabi communities in Canada differs, especially in in regions like Ontario versus BC and and how people came to this country to begin with. And I wonder what motivated you to start this work and how it differs across Canada and the different Punjabi communities that you're working with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So our team is actually comprised of people like from all over Canada, myself and I guess my co-founder, Bhavanjit Jima, she resides in British Columbia in Vancouver. And I'm in Toronto. So I think that's something that like the pandemic has allowed to happen is connecting like disparate diasporic communities to come together and do work that pertains to Punjabi communities all across Canada. But I guess to start with your first question, what motivated me to start this work? And I think this rings true for a lot of people on our team is the personal tie to the issue. So I grew up uh, in a house where there was a problem with alcohol, and it was kind of just like a constant struggle or fight. There wasn't really 
any knowledge around how to help someone who might be struggling with a problem with alcohol, what that even looked like, what the impact of that was. Not to be cliche, but it was just like pretty normalized. It was like, okay, like this happens, someone drinks, the resultant is there's a big fight, like an argument in the family. And then after that, you kind of go to sleep and you're like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do. And I think from that, we're not thinking about the circle of impact that that's having. So as like someone who grew up in that household, like how that impacted me and how that shaped my relationship to alcohol and then how that shaped my relationship with alcohol in thinking about that and interrogating my own relationship with alcohol and trying to access resources when I was like, I don't think I have like a very healthy relationship with alcohol. And I think it might be because of like what was modeled for me. So I was able to like go out and access therapy and I was able to like talk through what was happening for me. And then I realized like as I got to having a more healthy relationship with alcohol, that not everyone was aware that this was something that's available for them or even that they might have a negative relationship with alcohol. As we were saying, like this is an issue that impacts all generations. And I think like in the normalization of like university binge drinking culture, it can kind of go over your head that maybe, hey, like you're using alcohol as like a coping mechanism to deal with something. And just thinking about like why you're gravitating towards a drink. For me, it wasn't like a conversation that was had and it wasn't modeled for me in my home. And from that, I just like got to thinking about other people in our communities. Helping them in that realization process was really important for me. So it was definitely the motivation came from my personal experiences, my familial experiences, just observing community members at like weddings, relatives, at functions, and then also just like general larger like university binge drinking culture and binge drinking culture as it like pervades through all aspects of our lives and how normalized it is. Again, not to be cliche, how that conversation like doesn't really get brought up because it's like, okay, you've had a stressful day, you're going to grab a drink and then you're going to be like less stressed. But yeah, really interrogating and being mindful about why you're doing all of that was definitely something that motivated my work. Yeah, engaging in the research process, I think was really helpful for me in understanding myself and the history and the context and how politics shapes these relationships and that it's not happening outside of time, that politics and history does influence relationships that individuals have with alcohol. So really interrogating structural issues and how that impacts someone's relationship with alcohol. I feel like I've gone off on a tangent, but that's <laughs> that's my answer. No, I think that's a great tangent to, to even talk about is this idea of the impact of things like colonialism on an issue like alcoholism and, and in particular in, in Desi and in, in Punjabi communities what that looks like, right? Because I think for so many people, it's not immediately there to understand that necessarily. And that's nobody's fault. It's just the the reality of the situation. And I wonder if you might be able to shed a little bit of light on that, on what that what that connection to to colonialism and, and white supremacy is when it comes to to alcohol in Punjabi communities and what you've seen that do. Because I think so often like Vasis across the board have so many taboos in what we speak about. Uh, within our families, within our homes, and and things that we're not necessarily allowed to confront. And mm-hmm. I think that being able to do that and, and the critical thinking that goes into interrogating that is so vital to being able to to resolve some of these hardships that we're facing. 
so yeah, I just wonder if you can shed some light on what that relationship looks like. I guess a small pitch for my thesis that I spent like years carving out. But yeah, in that work, I was really interrogating this question that I think some Punjabis definitely have where Punjabi Sikhs particularly, where they're looking at their Punjabi identity, and then they're looking at their Sikh identity, particularly when they're thinking about why a problem with alcohol exists. And I think oftentimes Punjabi culture becomes a scapegoat for why there is a problem with alcohol in the community, it kind of becomes like a narrative that it's something intrinsic to what it means to be Punjabi. Like Punjabis drink, that's who they are. It's a part of their masculinity. They sing it in their songs. It becomes something that is like a core part of Punjabi identity. And there's not really like an unpacking that goes with it. I think like I was kind of chatting about before, this relationship between alcohol and Punjabi culture, whatever that might mean, it gets really removed from history and politics and time. And so particularly here, I'm thinking about hyper-masculinization of Sikh communities, where Sikhs have been disproportionately recruited into armies where the British align themselves with the Sikhs as a more martial race. Mm-hmm. And like martial race in quotes, mm-hmm. there's an identity change happening where perhaps masculinity meant one thing pre-colonialism, and then the colonizer comes in, they paint themselves as forwards and Indians largely as backwards, but then they align themselves with the six who are a martial race, who are similar to the British, and an inter- like an internalization of this masculinity occurs and that kind of gets perpetuated through generations. And along with this like understanding of what it means to be masculine is also this idea that to be masculine is to drink. And it's obviously not that simple. There's like hundreds of years of colonization and like this discourse of people who are not white as backwards people and that problems with alcohol kind of get removed from that history of masculinizing Sikhi. And it becomes, oh, Punjabis are just a backwards people, can't control their relationships with alcohol. That's why there's this big issue. And it's not that, hey, you've been subjected to hundreds of years of colonization and intergenerational trauma, personal traumas. It gets removed from all of that. And it becomes as simple as, oh, like, quote unquote, Eastern cultures are backwards. They just don't understand how to address these problems or have these conversations. It's like really stigmatized and shameful and it gets removed from like histories of colonization or histories of trauma. And it gets painted as a really black and white issue where it's not something intrinsic to being Punjabi to drink. It has like a whole history there and then you inherit that mm-hmm. history. Yeah. Yeah. I think you raised so many good points and I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying about the sort of projection of toxic masculinity onto Punjabi communities and what that holds for a lot of people. Because I think so often in racialized communities, and this is a little bit tangential, across the board, we have such a hard time interrogating our own relationship to colonialism in ways that might have been harmful to to other racialized people, for example. So I I grew up a little bit in Brampton and my mom is a Singh. And so I had a lot of Punjabi 
community members and, and friends, right? And so often I would always hear about how Johnny McDonald wanted a, a, an army of Sikhs and wanted an army of Punjabis and didn't realize until I was older what that really meant, right? And like this pride associated with being a part of this army, an army that came to a country or that or now a country that's committing genocide against indigenous peoples, right? And what, what does that mean for it to hold pride versus to the reality of it being so violent, right? And so I think that's so, so key because we don't have those conversations in racialized communities often as we should, I think. And I don't know if, if that's something that you you have had experience with at all, but I think it's just such a key point that we, we can't interrogate these often because we're so siloed in looking at how we've been impacted as racialized peoples, very specifically based on ethnicity or religion or, or what have you, and don't always get the chance to like really see the impact that it has on other racialized people. And I just thought that was really interesting that you you brought that up because it's something I've I've witnessed my whole life and just been so confused about trying to talk to my community members about that. But the other thing that you mentioned that I, I found really interesting is this idea that like colonialism has perpetuated this stigmatization, for example, of, of alcoholism or what alcohol abuse looks like in different communities. And I wonder, like, I kind of want to read your thesis. <laughs> so if it's ever public, please do feel free to share because it sounds, it just sounds so amazing. Like, how did you get into the depth of doing that work? And I know this is a little bit of an aside from, from the astro work that you're doing, but do you mind sharing how you, how you formulated your thesis in that way? I just think it's so critical in terms of a conversation that needs to happen or multiple conversations, in fact. Yeah, maybe just going back to what you just shared, I think it's really that like internalizing of we are a backwards people and then attempting to be proximate to whiteness through like recruitment in the army and then forgetting about like the violences that the colonial body does or colonial bodies do. And it's a real focus on like attempting to be proximate to whiteness and then definitely like not engaging in all of the different ways that marginalized communities have also marginalized other communities. Mm -hmm. So definitely a conversation we try to have and like explaining in the gentlest of ways, that's definitely like a challenge that we've experienced and like really undoing that narrative and then contextualizing. But yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was kind of, yeah, my two cents on that. But around my thesis work, as I went into the work, I was going into it as like a quote unquote insider, whatever that means. And I think I was really thinking about how I thought my participants or my interviewees would answer these questions about like why problems with alcohol exist in our communities and what role Sikhi plays in it and what role Punjabi identity plays in it. And I, I think rightfully assumed that people would, and they did, would kind of blame Punjabi culture, as I was saying before. As I was like thinking about it and reading works and like doing my coursework, I was really thinking about binaries. So it really seemed like when someone has a problem with alcohol, it's because they're a bad sick, they're like adhering too hard to their like backwards Punjabi identity. And if they just want to like stop having a problem with alcohol, they just have to be a good sick, do the things that a good sick does. And that's as simple as it is. But as we all know, it's not as simple as this binary that we paint of good and bad and adhering to what it means to be Punjabi or what it means to be a sick and all of those 
words are just so loaded and so contextual to people. Like what it means for me to be a Punjabi person is so different than what it means for someone else to be a Punjabi person or their understanding of culture is not the same as my understanding of culture and here I mean like Punjabi culture. And it's because, and I'm borrowing like from the writings of like Shireen Razak and Sarah Ahmed and thinking about culture as fluid and always changing, always impacted again by time and history and politics. And who's defining what we presently assume to be Punjabi culture? It's very much defined by power and who has power. If we're thinking about colonial India, it's the British. If we're thinking about individuals who belong to oppressor castes or upper castes. So Mm -hmm. thinking about how Jet identity Mm -hmm. defines what we contemporarily think of as Punjabi culture and how even just talking to my like 16 interviewees, their understandings of Punjabi culture were so vast and different. And maybe it was just in the details. And yes, there are similarities across our definitions. Like I'm sure everyone would include like Bhangra and like Bolia and like, I don't know, Maki Niroti, like these very like physical pieces of culture. I think those would all be included. But then when we get to the things that maybe we can't touch, like values and attitudes that Punjabis carry, it's so fluid and like you can't really pin it down to one thing. And I think we sometimes fall into this narrative of confirmation bias, where we do kind of start adhering to this idea that we are a backwards culture. And I feel like I'm just like going on to like, a, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of what we start mm-hmm. internalizing that we belong to a backwards culture. And that like, it must be this like backwards culture that's like forcing us to drink. But again, like we're removing ourselves from like all of these different factors mm-hmm. that are influencing how these definitions are made. So I was just like, as I was doing all of my readings and thinking about binaries and thinking about how colonialism like really creates these binaries of mm-hmm. good and bad, I wanted to just like explode these categories and just be like, and just, yeah, reveal that it's just so much more yeah. than just good and bad, Punjabi and sick, and that it's helpful to understand individuals as they are through their individual experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also so unique as well, this integration and interrelationship between ethnic identity, and then religion, right? And how that's not something that I think everybody can look at in the same way. So I think it's really interesting that you're able to sort of challenge that narrative in a way that is intersectional when it comes to the relationship between those two things. So I hope that I hope that I do get to read your thesis one day, because it just sounds so amazing. But I want to jump back to some of the challenges that you face doing this work. And you mentioned these sort of intergenerational conversations around different racialized groups and and what it means to have proximity to whiteness has been one. And that's definitely one I can relate to as well, trying to speak to especially elders about about proximity to whiteness and, and the histories of our communities in this country. And so I wonder if there have been anything else that you've faced, particularly during the pandemic, but also just as you've created this environment for for young people to come together and have these discussions. Yeah, I think apart from like, funding and time and not having enough time on my plate to like engage in this work I think one of the challenges has been like challenging the narratives that we were previously speaking about and also like narratives around people who have problems with alcohol that's kind of something like that we're constantly pushing against moving away from like the biomedical model of understanding someone who has a problem with alcohol and even changing our language like oftentimes we don't 
like using the word alcoholic. Um, and that's still like the word that's in popular discourse. Like we engage with a lot of people who participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is like no slight to Alcoholics Anonymous because if Alcoholics Anonymous works for you. That's incredible. But I think it has been difficult to fight against that narrative of mm-hmm. labeling someone as an alcoholic mm-hmm. because it becomes like their one identity marker. And really this like attempt by individuals, and this is just like a more general comment, attempts to medicalize problems with alcohol, which of course, I think the bio aspect is important if someone is struggling with an addiction where there has been a biological change occurring. So it's not to like completely throw it away, but it's to think of the person more holistically. So thinking about the bio, thinking about the psycho, thinking about the social. So integrating all of these aspects and not simply labeling someone who has a problem with alcohol as like someone who's sick, someone who has a disease, Mm -hmm. someone who just needs to like take this medication and they'll be better. Mm -hmm. Someone who just needs like 10 sessions of like DBT and like motivational interviewing and they'll be fine. I think fighting against that narrative, introducing harm reduction, explaining that harm reduction isn't agreeing with someone's Mm -hmm. drinking, but it is accepting them as someone who drinks Mm -hmm. and maybe also has a problem with alcohol. So it's really, yeah, like that leading with compassion and kindness, which is so hard, particularly if that person who has a problem has been doing harm to you. So it's like this very fine line, this like very kind conversation that we try to have. But it is something that like comes up over and over again, this like biomedicalization of a problem with alcohol in the kindest way possible. Again, explode that category of what it means to be someone who consumes alcohol and how we can kindly approach these conversations and have them and I think in more helpful ways and more safe ways. And I think, yeah, because I do this work, it's kind of just like the conversation I end up having Mm -hmm. with so many people. But I was recently having a conversation with someone who identifies as female and was speaking about how difficult it is to even tell her parents that she drinks. And I'm like, that is so unsafe. I totally relate to that. That's totally like my life. I can't tell my parents I drink. But ultimately that becomes dangerous if and when I'm in a situation Mm -hmm. where maybe I need to like call my parents for a ride. Mm -hmm. But like my alternative would be just like driving myself home or just like, yeah, creating some sort of elaborate lie. So it's really, yeah, creating that safety in your Mm -hmm. household. Modeling positive relationships with alcohol is also really hard to advocate for because again, it seems like you're agreeing and making it okay that someone has a problem with alcohol. But really, it's that harm reduction piece again, just showing someone that you can have a healthy relationship with alcohol, that it doesn't have to always look like binge drinking. It can Mm -hmm. be mindful. You can like drink water with your alcohol. You can count your drinks. Mm -hmm. You can eat a full meal. You can just like be conscious of that relationship. So I think that's something that comes up over and over again. And I totally understand where the pushback comes from. Mm -hmm. It's very like analogous to like conversations around sex ed. So whole other (laughs) yeah exactly like i'm not promoting it or advocating it or like saying it's okay but like also kind yeah it's just a very fine line yeah it's just like a a conversation that i think honestly i don't know if it's actually been had and again not to Mm -hmm. be like that cliche like these conversations need to happen but like i don't think anyone is talking about modeling healthy drinking habits. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to do that as opposed to just having a bunch of spaces that advocate for sobriety. 
and like sobriety can be hard Mm -hmm. and drinking is painted as like really fun and exciting and you know what like sometimes having a drink with your friends is really fun and exciting and if you can do it in a safe way Mm -hmm. I think if you're not harming others then I think there's space to have that conversation. Yeah. And I think the thing that you mentioned about not having had this conversation yet, I think is also really key in that something that I have been thinking about a lot since colonizer Prince Philip died is I saw a tweet about how he's older than than like the Republic of India. Yes. And I'm just like, yeah. look at how far the damage has gone. <laughs> like we are so new as people and diasporas that there's like, AA that you mentioned, for example, right, is not going to be culturally competent or conducive to the communities that we come from. It's not going to help in the same way because it's not addressing the same issues, right? It's mm-hmm. treating it as something that will work for some people and, and thankfully so, right? That's great. But it's not going to affect our communities in the same way, right? Like I can't imagine like even the religious components of it, right, that are, are very stemming from from Christianity and white Christianity in particular, how is that going to affect other people from from different religions if they're struggling with this, right? And so that that's like a really good point, I think, is is to understand that the reason why we haven't had these conversations yet, and as much as for for so many of us, I think, feel like it's so long overdue, and it is, but we're just so new as diasporas and as people too. That it's hard, I think, to navigate that in this world that we're in and in the the colonial lands that we're on, right? That are not here to serve us. I think AA definitely serves uh, particular demographics. And I think that it, it's a helpful organization to know about and who to refer to this organization. But also, I think it's so important to decolonize like the work that they are doing. Yeah. I think my critique of AA is that they function as an organization that says they're secular, mm. just like the state of Canada acts like they're secular, yes. but they're not. Yes, It's like a very colonized mm-hmm. understanding of even sicky mm-hmm. if we're going to like have a sick person attend mm-hmm. an AA meeting. It's still a very like, oh, like there's a God in the sky. He, capital H-E, mm-hmm. is watching everything you do. Yeah. And it's very decontextualized from actual lived understanding mm-hmm. of Sikhi. And I think it's important to have that insight as well. Mm-hmm. Especially because it's so integral to the community that you're speaking to, right? Like mm-hmm. to, to completely void any, I think, religious understanding would be would be detrimental to, to serving people if we're talking about like Punjabi Sikh communities, right? And so to have like one or the other, like something that is going to impact Maybe like Punjabi Hindu communities is not the same as something that's going to impact Punjabi Sikh communities. But do we have the nuance in this, what is currently Canada, to discuss that, right? And to, to be able to discern the differences between what communities need. So I think the fact that you're able to do that is, is really special. Yeah, I think something I'm also thinking about is these monolithicizing narratives that we do feed into, where it's like, we're talking about South Asians at large. And I guess I particularly like take issue with this when it's used in a research context, mm-hmm. like particularly, I know there's like work right now mm-hmm. being done on like CBT for South Asia. Oh, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, first of all, South Asian, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of differences within that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I participated in this study as like an inter- someone that got interviewed and their last question was like, do you think CBT would work for South Asians? And I'm like, I'm not sure what this question is asking, Mm -hmm. because if I say no, 
then I'm saying there's something inherent to every single South Asian person that makes CBT incompatible Mm -hmm, for them. mm -hmm. If I say yes, then I'm also feeding into this idea that like CBT, the way it is right Mm -hmm. now, without critique is like good for all South Mm -hmm. Asians. Like just slap those like models onto South Asians, Mm -hmm. get that CBT triangle out, think about your thoughts, change your harmful thoughts, and you're all good. But I think there's just like so much nuance missing. I'm thinking about neoliberalism. Everyone just wants like a nice little quick fix, Mm -hmm. a nice little band-aid without thinking about structures and wider impacts. Yeah, it's just not as simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like people don't realize that like modern day India, like Republic of Bharat is like one of the most ethnically diverse places in the world. So if you then say all of South Asia, how many more than ethnicities are we talking about? I think people like really don't understand the difference between race and ethnicity and how that affects different Mm -hmm. communities. Like it's just wild to me, but alas, colonialism, I guess. (laughs) I'm just thinking now of like all the times people have been like, do South Asians do this and that? And I'm just like, First of all, I'm from like the slave trade diaspora, so <laughs> I don't even know how to answer you. Exactly. Like the racism is so stark when people are like, do Indians do this? Mm-hmm. And it's like something like very related to what we would understand as like Hinduism. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know. I'm a Punjabi Sikh. <laughs> like that's what's something I practice, but also I'm a Canadian, whatever that means. Like I was born and raised in Winnipeg, so I could tell you <laughs> what Winnipeggers do, <laughs> but I can't tell you what like indians or punjabis like i'm not really sure what your question is like yeah like people really want to create like one dimensional Mm -hmm. images of people oh yes the joy of white supremacy you know (laughs) But (laughs) but it's great that we have people like you actively challenging that right and challenging it in academia which is in the west valued right and so we have an opportunity to share knowledge and share information in a way that unfortunately has to be digestible to these white folks, but is digestible also to the, or is acceptable to the masses, right? As as evidence or proof or whatever that they demand from us. But I think that that's really important that you're able to navigate that space and all the white supremacy that comes with being in academia while pushing forward these non-binary narratives around our communities. But I want to step away a little bit from, from the challenges and the difficulties and, and focus on some of the highlights that you've had in doing this work. Has there been any particular success stories or, or fulfilling moments that you've been like, you know what, this is why I take on the challenges. This is why I continue doing this. Totally. Yeah, I think one of like the biggest successes is everyone that's on our team that like reaches out to us and is like, I'd like to be more involved. And they do it like we don't have much funding. We provide honorariums wherever we can. But a lot of the times individuals are joining because of personal experiences and wanting to help out others who are in similar situations to them. Learning from and with everyone on our team has just been so helpful. Like I'm from a religious studies and now I guess a social work background. My co-lead Bevanjit, she's just finishing up medical school. We have individuals from like marketing backgrounds, women gender studies, poli-sci, like film. So it's like, yeah, truly this really interdisciplinary take on problems with alcohol and like Punjabi communities. And I just love learning with everyone because I'm a big nerd. So that's definitely like one of our success stories, the sharing that we do with each other. I think one of our facilitators 
described our Broken Punjabi Conversation series as just Punjabi people talking about their feelings and how he'd never like experienced a space like this. And that was just like super fulfilling. I was like, yeah, you're right. That is what we're doing. Particularly as someone who's like very like, oh, what are we doing? Is this like impacting anyone? Like, I need to know if this is helpful. I need to know if this is productive. So for him to just say something so simple, I was like, you're right. I think I can I can sit in this moment of this space just not just because I think that's a big it's a big deal but it is Punjabi people talking about their feelings so that's that's something that's a great measure of success for me and then I guess yeah like more of a tangible one recently I had someone reach out and share that she had been sharing or like Instagram graphics which like in the age of Instagram graphics I'm like yeah very like hesitant but also like yeah it was very kind for her to reach out and say that she had been sharing these graphics with her brother who had recently decided to challenge his relationship with alcohol or rethink his relationship with alcohol. And that was just like, so meaningful. I was, yeah, just like so grateful for her to share that with us that like, I'm not like on Canva trying to like translate and like be really mindful Mm -hmm. of the words I'm using and like contextualizing. Cause I don't think yeah, like these graphics are just like pretty things that we throw together. It takes like a long time for us to contextualize and make sure that we're like reducing the harm that's already been created and contextualizing it to like Punjabi experiences in the plural. So it's really nice to hear that people are engaging with our graphics or with our website and are receiving something from it that's having a positive impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is so important to be able to point to some of those things not to prove necessarily that what you're doing is working for the sake of other people, but to demonstrate for yourself, I think that it's worth it, right? Like you're making a difference, you're having an impact, and you're helping other people who are like you and people in your community. Because I think so, like the reason why I started Leading in Color, for example, was because I felt like this was our our responsibility, especially as like first-gen Canadians, so to speak, if you want to call yourself that, but people who come from immigrant or refugee families, what that could look like for us to be the ones to bring the change to our communities and to to make that intergenerational knowledge and peer-to-peer knowledge sharing available for folks. So that's that's amazing that you've been able to do that so swiftly and, and effectively. Yes, totally. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you said around this is our responsibility. And then I'm thinking about like narratives of like survival and self-actualization that got told about like first and second generation communities Mm -hmm. that like our parents were taxed with survival and we get to Mm self-actualize. And then I'm also thinking about like the intricacies in that self-actualization, how like different responsibilities and different like modes of survival are actually intertwined with that. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, I know. As you're saying that, I'm like, (laughs) oh, and thinking about being like immigrant daughters or like the first daughters in family. What does that look like in terms of responsibility? Just so, so much that we could talk about. Yeah. (laughs) And hopefully we'll, we'll get to continue. But while we're, we're here, we really want to hear about some of the opportunities that you folks have available for other young people to get involved with. What are some of your upcoming projects or, or volunteer opportunities, et cetera, that folks can head to your website to check out? Our website is asrnow.ca, so A-S-R-A-N-O-W.ca. And folks can reach out to us via email at contact at asrnow.ca if they're interested in volunteering or interested in knowing more about like the work we're currently doing and the upcoming work we have right now. Like I said, our monthly conversation series, Broken Punjabi, is running. We have an event, I believe, next Saturday, the 25th of April. 
around the intersections of queer identities and Punjabi identities, and the role alcohol plays in that. So that's more of introducing that topic. And hopefully from there, we can continue having those conversations and understanding what supports are needed by LGBTQ plus Punjabis and their relationships with alcohol. And we are also doing a three-part series on grief. So we had our first conversation, I believe, in March, Time is an Illusion. Our next one is in at the beginning of May, I believe. So if you yeah, just want to throw us like a social media follow, we'll be updating it there. And then the third part in that series is a writing workshop. And we hope to provide everyone with honorariums and take those writings and put it into a collective zine on grief in Punjabi communities. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful information. I'm so excited to see the work that you're continuing to do, both in your your personal academic life and also with your organization and, and the work that you folks are doing. Before I let you go, we have our closing segment that I call How I Would End Racism, which sounds very abstract. But as young leaders of color, we are always trying to actually end or at least reduce racism and the harm that it causes to both ourselves and our communities, our peers. But what if we didn't have to fight this fight? What if we could just end it instantly? I'd love to hear what your funniest or best pitch is for how you would end racism. My favorite and go-to is always the Thanos snap from Marvel, Mm. which I know is military propaganda, (laughs) but just the snap where where all the white supremacists would just disappear. Yeah, (laughs) would be mine. But I'd love to hear what you think would end racism instantly. So there's like a trope, I think that happens in like action movies, where the plot that the main character is trying to fight against. So like, for example, I don't know if someone is rigging like an explosion at an arena, and like the main character, like their goal is to stop that explosion from happening. And then that explosion is usually like rigged by so someone it'll be like maybe at a stadium where like someone is singing and when they like hit that last note, that's when the explosion happens. So like the plot is that the main character, the hero has to like get all of this stuff done and like, I don't know, make sure the bomb doesn't explode by the end of this song. So my idea is that it's Beyonce's Coachella performance. And at the end of Amazing. that, so she's just like Coachella performancing and like, I guess the white supremacists are trying to like, I don't know, whatever they're trying to do, trying to make sure she doesn't finish that performance. But at the end of that performance, like a antidote for racism is like released into the air, that like last <laughs> note she hit and like everyone's like, no, it's been released. Like that's like, like an anti- airborne r- antiviral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like really on scene for like pandemic, but also uh-huh. Beyonce and also like an early 2000s Disney trope. It's like the Mighty Ducks at the end of the game, the uh, stadium's going to explode. We must stop it. But in this case, we don't want it to stop. The white supremacists lose. And Beyonce hits that final note, the antidote is released into the air, racism is gone. I hope that makes sense. I'm down. I'm so down for this. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mwendinder, for coming on and talking with us. It was great to have you. And I'm, again, so excited to see what you do next. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.